I would like to take a moment to highlight a truly unique way to experience folklore that I was recently introduced to. The Craft is a mystery puzzle game for lovers of folklore and myth. It combines incredible tales, as well as engaging puzzles and ciphers that you must solve to reveal mysterious occurrences, uncover otherworldly activities, and explore deep and fascinating stories from around the world. In these games, you help Lydia Law, director of the Centre for Research and Archives of Anecdotal Folktales, otherwise known as Craft, as a field agent exploring the unknown. There are currently 12 different adventures to choose from, and you can explore them all at www.madmenandheroes.com. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Telling stories is ingrained in our very makeup as human beings. Since we developed the power of speech, we've used stories not only to entertain, but to educate and to make sense of our surroundings. Stories may see particular shifts from place to place and from culture to culture but ultimately, they're informed by what's around us, and in return, they explain to us who we are, and what our place is within our own landscape. Our stories give us our identity. Jason Buck is a professional storyteller who's been performing for most of his adult life. He specialises in telling dark fairy tales which blend dark magic with uplifting themes of love. Past guest of the podcast, Marianne O'Hotter, is an anthropologist, archaeologist, and TV presenter who's appeared on Time Team, Mystic Britain, and various other programmes as an interpreter of history. Together, Marianne and Jason are undertaking a new adventure to use storytelling as a method of interpreting historical artefacts and archaeological sites blending the facts with a creative interpretation of story to suggest a background to the very real items being examined. Their new show, Monuments and Memories, is available to enjoy through online delivery. I spoke with the pair recently about the use of stories in archaeological interpretation. In this episode, that interview is interspersed with some examples of their tales. They say that in one's last moments our lives flash before our eyes. How they know this happens as no one has ever returned to tell the tale as a mystery, but for the moment let us accept that this is true. And we shall accept that this is true because in the last moments of his life a particular warrior remembered with perfect clarity the two reasons for the trajectory and the ferocity of his great leaping jump into the air. The first reason 
was to inspire the other warriors as he launched like an eagle taking wing, strong, proud and athletic, up into the air, over the enemy shields, bursting through the line of men and the royal bodyguard, hoping to land right on top of the enemy's king. The second was that the day before the warrior's death had been predicted by the priest, and if today was the day to die, if that was what the gods had decided, then it would be a glorious death, wreaking havoc on the enemy in such a way that they would leave, never to return, and the warrior's children and children's children would tell the stories of his death. And so, this story takes as long as it takes to tell, but in its entirety it covers the length of time it took for a man born two and a half thousand years ago to jump, spreading his arms like the wings of the eagle he'd sacrificed, a wood and leather-covered shield strapped to one arm and a shining sword in the other and a gleaming helm on his head and for him to land and meet his fate. At dawn, two days before, his tribe's old enemies had arrived in force outside the wooden palisade and high earth walls of the hill fort and issued their insults, their challenges and their demands. Their warriors lined up with brightly painted oval shields, the morning sun glinting off the tips of spears and the domes of helms, and walking forward to call out to the leaders within the fort, their king a mighty warrior, clad from shoulder to thigh in a shirt of chainmail, gold sparkling on his helm, and the jewelled scabbard of his sword. He was, said the bards and the priests, blessed by the gods and immune to sword or spear or arrow or any other weapon. He was unkillable. The nobles and the elders inside the safety of their fortifications met in council and decided they would not yield and that they would march out in force and meet their foe in combat. The day after that, the day before the great winged leap into battle, when war gear was being repaired and polished and painted, the warrior, along with others, had consulted the priest for signs and auguries to divine the outcome of their fates. He had spent the morning searching the hills until he found what he was looking for, an eagle soaring in the morning sky and brought the bird down with a stone shot from his sling. While it was warm, the priest had made a cut in its throat, holding it upside down so that the blood trickled into a small spoon resting on the rock altar in the sacred grove. The spoon was a little over the size of a large hen's egg, and likewise oval in shape, and bold like that of a modern tablespoon, made of bronze, and pierced in its centre with a small hole. Using the power of the great sight that the eagle's blood carried as the bird itself had been gifted, the priest allowed the gods to guide his own vision as he picked up the small object and let the shining ruby liquid drop through the hole into a second spoon of the same design, but unpierced. He watched as the drops of blood spattered into the second spoon and allowed his inner sight to see the warrior's fortune in the sanguine droplets, shapes and patterns but it was not a good fortune, and the blood in the bronze spoons told of the man's death 
next day in battle. So, Marianne, previous guest of the Folklore Podcast, and Jason, new guest of the Folklore Podcast, welcome both to the Folklore Podcast. Thank you. It's good to be back. It's lovely to have you both here. Now, um, today we're going to chat a little bit about a thing that you both do together, and that thing is the uh, use of the art of storytelling, Jason's particular area of expertise, to talk about and interpret things like archaeology and these sorts of areas. Marianne's part of this in expertise terms. So how have you ended up doing this? How did you two kind of get together and go, do you know what, this would be a good idea? Um, well, it was a bit of a random one, as often these things are. Uh, a mutual friend introduced us uh, around the back of a tent at Country File Live some years ago. And I said, oh, storytelling. I've always been interested in that. And, and Jason then went on to um, sort of casually describe some of his archaeological experiences that suggested that he had a depth of knowledge that, um, that, that was uh, impressive. And um, we just got chatting and I said I'd always been interested in that that kind of oral history aspect of of archaeology and and history you know you've kind of got the epics like beowulf but also how does when you're trying to interpret the archaeology of a site or indeed the archaeology of a landscape or make sense of um a sort of a a, a legacy of a folklore tradition that was all told live you know there's a performer and, and an audience in that sort of dance together and that's something that Jason does in his day job and I thought gosh that you know if we can synthesize those ways of knowing and understanding and better uh, better engaging with the past wouldn't that be an exciting thing and off we went. Was this concept kind of slightly alien to you, Jason, when, when Marianne proposed this or or had you kind of used archaeological sites and and items as part of your storytelling process before i think um yeah it was it was the challenge for me was how do we kind of take something that can't just be fiction or can't just be made up and where's the basis for that what's what are, what are we drawing from and um uh, talking to marianne and looking through some of the previous work she's done before there were some of the fascinating finds and some of those really interesting uh, interesting real objects that had belonged to real people and how do we kind of then create something that is both entertaining and informing but yet sort of still anchored to that uh, to that object the first um show that we worked together on was all based on artefacts that had been discovered and reported by members of the public to the portable antiquities scheme so you can go online um to finds.org.uk and it's, it's a national scheme that's that's run it's kind of headquartered at the british museum but all the the kind of local archaeologists that if you found something in a field or in your garden that's the person that you would contact they're all organized by this scheme and you report treasure, that's a legal responsibility. But if you find something that you think might be interesting, it might be a thing, then you're encouraged to voluntarily report it and put it on this database. You get to keep the thing if you want to, depending on what your agreement with the landowner is and all the rest of it. But essentially, it's about capturing the information of these different artefacts, uh, because that's that knowledge belongs to us all. And and Jason and I used those artefacts or picked out some of those artefacts as the basis of, of stories, because I think one of the things that 
that kind of appeal to us both as well is that these aren't, you know, the crown jewels. This isn't the enormous crusader castle that's had reams and reams and reams of research done about it. These are artefacts that were oftentimes quite everyday artefacts that have these very human-sized stories attached to them. And I think, certainly for me, when when I've had the good fortune of being on an archaeological excavation or walking through the landscape those are the moments when the past feels sort of electrically near you know the veil is a little bit thinner that moment where you're holding a a bone hairpin that someone last had in their hair 2000 years ago and you found it in a roman ditch or the bit where you're walking along a um, you know a, a sunken lane kind of going this is where they walked to canterbury or this is where they walked to the village pub or to carry their dead to the parish churchyard I think for me, those are the moments that just feel magical. And the idea of basing that on sort of true fact, you know, the hard the hard archaeological science, but then building something that fills in those gaps, that, that brings, fleshes out the skeleton. That's the thing that, that, that feels special about what we do. And I think the thing is, uh, for, from the story point of view, is that often we think, when we think of stories, we think of those epics. And Marianne, you just mentioned sort of Beowulf, and that's one that's come down the centuries, but it's huge and it's sweeping. But the stories are actually always about the people. And a lot of the things that we ended up talking about, whether they be the sites um, or they be the objects, some of them are actually very humble things, whether they be a, a spindle whirl that went on the bottom of a, a, a spinning spindle from the, the Viking era, uh, or, a, or a nose, a prosthetic metal nose that was found in a field that somebody had obviously worn as a replacement at some point. And those are the things that then you can spin and make that kind of rich tapestry that builds up into that big story, but starts with those very humble and very personal, very real beginnings. Yeah. Yeah, this is and this is all strangely pertinent actually because <laughs> as a random aside to this whilst digging out the um earth behind my chicken run at the, <laughs> the weekend <laughs> I unearthed a tiny glass perfume bottle with a gla- ah. with a glass ah. stopper and, and thought to myself why is this randomly in the hedge at the back of my chicken <laughs> And it's those little things, isn't it? That just you know, it's 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 so insignificant that it wouldn't even make it to finds.org. But but it's it's a nice little thing when you clean it up and and kind of out of context, these things are really interesting and and you do make you wonder about the stories. So you've got all of these artifacts, all of these potential archaeological sites which you can work with. How do you pin that down? What what makes you go that? <laughs> that's what's going to make a good story. Well, do you know what, Mark? You talking about your perfume bottle made me immediately kind of... The thing that's fun about working with, I suspect Jason particularly, but with a storyteller and that storytelling tradition, is that as a sort of someone someone coming from the the non-fiction side of things... um, I, I, you know, I'm wed to the facts and you kind of... If you don't know, you can speculate, but you need to be very clear that you're speculating... this is an opportunity to sort of play based on that information that we have. You kind of launch off into a great leap of creativity. So your perfume bottle, you can tell the story about what was in it, who wore it, what the perfume meant to that person, why it ended up in the hedge. So you could go funny, you could go emotional, it could be tragic. Um, So I think, I mean, for me, partly guided by Jason, because he's the the expert in this bit, Uh um, but also 
it's kind of the thing that captures your imagination and and that is that is as much a, a good criteria as any because you kind of assume that if you've done a good job as a, a storyteller if it's captured your imagination you will take your audience with you and you go on that that journey of of delight and imagination together it brings those things how about you jason i don't even know actually how you choose <laughs> well <your bit. laughs> I, I think I, yeah i mean I, I, um I think quite simply, it's the the bits that I choose are the bits that fascinate me. And that that what you were saying there about going on that sort of uh, trip of the imagination. As soon as you said, you know, I found a perfume bottle and it had it was glass. It was a glass stopper. And in my mind, I've got a very clear picture of what I think that looks like. Um, but is it a perfume bottle? Was it a perfume bottle? Did it contain things other than perfume? And and it's incumbent on a, a, a on a performance storyteller. And that's where we're standing up and we're talking to the audience. We're not sitting down and reading a book um, uh, and not re- reading out text, but it is a performance like a stand-up comedian would. It's incumbent on the storyteller to, to create those pictures in people's minds. So at the moment, all three of us have very three very different ideas about that object and what it looks like. You know it because you've seen it, Mark, and Marianne and I will now have those those objects but when we start to weave the story start to put those things together there's an interesting blend here with uh, Marianne and myself between making the stuff up because it's cool and it sounds cool and it looks cool <laughs> then actually thinking yes but we can actually constrain ourselves by the reality of what we know or what we might know or what we could infer and so then you can bound that so it becomes a very real thing in someone's imagination that they can see but also that they can identify with as well. Is is there a kind of process that has to be gone through there? That's, I'm just thinking a little more about this. You give a description in one of your shows where, where you say art and science combine. Okay, you take the facts yeah. and then let unfold the stories that happened or could have happened to them. So, is there a process to be gone through here in this mix between? fact and fiction you know jason are you coming up with these ideas that tell the most amazing story and then mary ann go well hang on a minute you can't say that because <laughs> yeah. or there's, that does sometimes you know, happen yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think there's, there's a bit when i'm doing stuff and i perhaps i go off on, on, on a creative thing and mary ann says well actually but also mary ann also then adds stuff to things but it's very much actually a, 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 a dual, dual process here. Marianne isn't the kind of just the um, straight down the line kind of science bod who sits there silently while I walk around in pointy shoes making up fabulous stories. The two of us kind of come up with those creative things ourselves. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of sometimes it's oh, sorry, go. On. I was just saying, thinking of one example we had, which was an object, which was a, which was a helmet. Um, which uh, had human remains in it, cremated human remains. And after I'd written the story and told it to Marianne a few times, and she said, oh, yes, but this or that, this, and sort of tweak things, it was almost ready to go. I think it may have been close to our first performance of it when it was discovered that the helmet that we assume belongs to a um, you know a bloke with a big moustache and a big beard back from, the, uh, back from the Iron Age, the remains inside the helmet were likely to be actually to be of a woman. So suddenly that threw the end of the story into, right, well, I'm going to keep the story as it is, but who does who is in that helmet? Was it the warrior? Was the warrior a woman? Was it his wife, his daughter, his friend, his lover, his queen? Um, and so that extra, those bits of science and those bits of facts I always just simply add to the creativity as well. It's not a, it's not a clear-cut, separated process. Mm. 
and, and sometimes it's a kind of specific, you know, okay, if we're talking about Neolithic farmers trundling or Bronze Age farmers trundling through the fields, what are they sickling and are they what kind of knife are they using to cut their crops and what kind of crops are they growing you know uh, so it's a specific specific sort of details i'm struck um to my shame i can't remember the name of the author but they wrote uh, they write historical fiction i'm gonna have to uh my husband told me this quote who's a children's author and he said basically the important thing is not is it true but is it believable so to some extent, you can play with the the facts without misleading people because your focus is to bring the past to life, to do it justice, to do the, the science justice and the archaeology justice, but also to tell a good yarn. I think that, I mean, there's there's no, no shame in saying this has to be a good story as well. Um, and and I think that's, that's one of the things. Often when you're talking to... Um, uh, scientists to academics they kind of say well we have to stick with the facts we go yes and tell a story hmm. because that's the thing that engages the rest of a human brain you know we're, we're not um data processing centers we're story pro story processing centers and i think that's essential essential to the task and i've i've been i've noticed actually in in quite a few um archaeology books that are written by academics for a, a broad readership often they start now with a little vignette that sort of brings to life a moment of time in a cave shelter where neanderthals are gathering around a fire or what happens to the tiny viking bead as it falls from someone's necklace and ends up in uh you know in a, a ditch in in yorkshire um and I think I think I think there's an acknowledgement now that that isn't lying. That's just bringing the past to life. Yes, yes. And then they're segueing into the kind of the actual historical data behind it, aren't they? It's it's the equivalent. Whereas we start with the data and then segue into the story. <laughs> it's the equivalent, isn't it? If you want to look at it in terms in terms of um, TV, I suppose of, of that awful term edutainment <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> well you know you, you are seeking to educate and you are seeking to entertain and at the end of the day that's what storytelling is and and always has been the queen stood bristling with gold and glorious ornament the embroidery at the hem and sleeves of her robe jewel colors of red and blue were caught in the light from the tapers and the heaped hearth fire the gold rings on her fingers sparkled. The only thing that glittered more brightly than the ornaments bedecking her person was the fire sparkle in her eyes. She was looking at one thing, one person. The king, Radwald. He had been in the great mead hall for some time now. He had addressed his men, then his musicians had played and the court poet, the shop, had told some of the great tales to the assembled lords, of Woofer, the wolf, first king of the East Angles. The shop gave a tally of their ancestral line, those war-wise heroes who had fought giants and dragons and men across the seas. The shop had then recited a piece of history about the fairest queen, her, and her people, the East Saxons. Great queen, he'd warbled, plucking at his lyre, 
arrayed in gold, beautiful to behold, most gracious in form and thought. Peace Weaver, he'd called her, because her marriage to Radwald had tied bonds of kinship between the noble kingdoms of Essex, the East Saxons, and across East Anglia. Instructing the shop to tell this story was canny work on the part of her husband. She would own that. It was unusual, and an honour for a whole turn to be devoted to her. But still, a pretty poem would not fix this. She didn't feel like a peace weaver tonight. She wanted a fight. In terms of folklore, and, and for this I usually use the parallel of investigating ghost stories, this is not problematic. You know, folklorists aren't setting out to establish that ghosts exist and here's the scientific evidence, or that ghosts don't exist and, and this is what's going on. You know, that's what Mystery Incorporated are for, and, and, and other ghost hunting organisations. Um, what we seek to do is is to look at you know, the, the transition of the tale, why these stories are told, what the purpose is behind them, how they've changed and shaped over time, how they've adapted to the cultural identifiers, where they are, and that's all fine and great. With what you're doing, is it slightly different? Are, are there more ethical issues behind fictionalising the data that you're working with? Or is that not a problem? If we know the facts, we don't change them. But where we where we get to play imaginatively is by filling in the blanks. I think what we what we're always doing is because the two of us are working together, and we're not just producing a a show of stories just for entertainment. We are quite clearly talking about real things or real places, and uh, to varying degrees how much we know. We always have to tie it back to make sure that we're kind of paying paying service to the object or the in, the information. Um, there's plenty of... I mean, we, we could go away and do some great uh, storytelling shows which are just purely made up, inspired by Vikings, Romans, coins, you know, whatever. But the purpose of this is is to bring those two things together. And we've got the, uh, we've got the two different backgrounds that we have, our two disciplines, and then we meld them. Uh, we both tell the stories, we both talk about the objects, um, uh, uh, as well. So, in terms of in terms of ethics, I don't think we do ethics because we think there's a there's a law that we should, but it's because I think we're setting out to tell people about a very real thing, and then to put it in context, and uh, either a fictional or a imagined uh, uh, non-fictional setting, and that power of storytelling and the way that we all tell stories to each other about what we did yesterday, the film we saw last week, because it's a way of con conveying large volumes of information in incremental amounts and in entertaining ways that we can picture. And then we leave great big holes in the bits you don't need to do details in. We can all invent what shape the perfume bottle is. We don't need to perhaps know that. We don't need to, to say what colour the trousers are that someone's wearing. We, we, can, we can all know that. And we all have that immersive experience. But we're still starting from a place of, here's a really interesting real thing. What if this about it? Now you're, you're both experts in your individual fields. Um... Marianne, you're a, a multi-talented lady, but, but the public face of what you do for most people will, will be through TV presenting, probably. Um, now, that's very different to telling a story in the way that you're doing it here. 
Jason, you're a performance storyteller, but you don't always have the luxury with these sorts of shows of having the audience right there in front of you if you're delivering online, for example. We've had lots of storytellers on the podcast in the past. We'll have lots more in the future because it's it's a key area of folklore. Is your performance here wildly different to normal storytelling performance, if indeed there is such a thing as normal storytelling performance? How are you delivering in this particular case? Uh, well, for me, it was a it was a an introduction to to something that I'd always been in the audience for, never up at the front for. And so I attended a workshop, actually, that Jason was running about storytelling performance, um, which covered, he, he kind of shared his, his tips and tricks about how do you actually remember a story without learning it by rote? Because you want some of that magic to be um, created in the moment rather than someone just acting a part. You know, you've learned your monologue effectively. But for me, when you're presenting for, for TV or, or um, making a radio documentary or something like that, it's quite small because if you perform, you look ridiculous and sound ridiculous. And actually what you have to think is that you're telling one person who happens to be standing where the camera is. They've t t turned into a camera, but you're talking to a person. Whereas when you're performing in the round, we've performed at the British Museum on a big stage. We've performed at um, Butzer Ancient Farm in an, a replica Iron Age roundhouse. Those those skills of that sort of stagecraft that I am constantly learning from Jason, and it's very much a, a work in progress for me. It's very different because you need those tiny moments where people lean in, but you also need the kind of big, I'm holding space now, shut up and listen because I've got something to say. Um, and and it's quite fun, but hugely intimidating. Goodness me, Mark, my hands were sweating the first time I did, and still now I get way more nervous doing a storytelling show than presenting or uh, interviewing a, a kind of some kind of you know eminent whatever. What about you, Jason? Have have you had to adapt your style for this particular um, type of show? Um, no, not hugely, no. Um, I think that for, for me, it's just making sure that if there are facts, if there are particular things, I need to hit those things. I need to make sure I remember them as they are. And I can't bend the truth if we're talking about a real object. I can't say that a, a spin, Viking spindle well made of lead was made of gold <laughs> unless we're making up, making up something completely new, you know, because I'm trying to talk about something, something very real. Um, but it's been a lot of fun uh, doing that thing with with uh, uh, Mary Ann, the two of us sitting and rehearsing and, and going through stuff here, story style, um, because I think she's right. I mean, yes, I would probably be, be ridiculously flamboyant and bombastic in uh, uh, presenting anything, uh, preposterously so. But yes, in when you're doing performance storytelling, you have that that rapport with an audience, whether they are in front of you or as, as soon as lockdown happened, whether they are sometimes invisible on a screen. You're, instead of thinking one person is there, I have to imagine a room full of people or that that person is very close. And I'm talking, as Marianne said, very quietly and meaningfully so that you do bring tears to people's eyes. You make their heart pump and surge when the exciting stuff's happened. And you bring that emotion and take people along on that journey with you whilst delivering the story itself and also keeping, in our case, in our shows, keeping those facts, those important real things in there.
lots of people will be interested in this art i'm sure as well so so do do share a tip or two how do you learn to tell a story Marianne because you you weren't doing this before how do you learn to tell a story without learning it by rote because that defeats the object of good storytelling so uh as Jason says we we honor the facts and get them right um and so that stuff you kind of just have to practice and one of the best ways of practicing is is well however you used to um, revise for exams basically so whether you kind of hastily write down dates and bullet points put them on a a a little index card and kind of carry it around until you do remember it and you can write it down yourself or tell the person uh, opposite you at the dinner table or over breakfast about the anglo-saxon belt fitting or what have you um, and then the storytelling side of things that when you kind of go into the story, um, I guess my three top tips would be learn the skeleton of where you're going and then you can flesh out the world, flesh out the details as you go. So you might need to know that person A gets on the cart but before they get on the cart, they have to harness the horse. And before they harness the horse, they have to get the horse out of the stable. OK, so as you're describing your story, the person leaves. Where are they leaving? Like, send, you know, kind of situate the story for someone and then describe what they do and how they're feeling and what they look like. Uh, and as Jason says, you don't need to give everybody all the details. Uh, it doesn't need to be encyclopedic and comprehensive, but you need to paint enough so that they're not going wait I thought they were by the coast but now you've just described a mountain and my brain is confused because then the person is snapped out of the story going wait wh- wh- where is this village what what are we in where wh- is it raining I didn't know it was raining um so you kind of need to know your details so it's raining they leave the house they go to the stable they get the horse is the horse friendly is the horse tall is the horse terrifying whatever the horse is and then you go to the car and then on you get and at some point that belt buckle falls off um and so you kind of need the beats the the kind of the ribs of the story and then the details they they kind of filter in and they change as you tell so the more times you tell the story the more certainly for my from my experience uh the more comfortable in the world it feels more familiar i'm like oh we're back at the stable okay what's the stable like today And there she was in the forest. It was night and everything should have been dark, but the moon shining down from above lit up that forest and the snow and the ice reflected its white, white light and sent everything into sharp relief. The white of the snow, the white of the birch bark on the trees, the dark of the shadows and the silence of the night. Only the sound of the quiet crunch under her feet as she crept forward slowly, slowly, a bow in her hand, an arrow knocked on the string. She'd been tracking the beast all day. There was one animal and one animal alone that she needed to find, and that would be the thing that would save her brother, to kill this animal and to take back its meat and its blood for him to eat and drink. But this was no ordinary beast. This was an aurochs. Huge, vast, taller than her teenage head. Its shoulders were like the humps of great mountains. Its flanks rippled like the rivers. 
and its great heavy head swung from side to side, bearing those vast and heavy, heavy horns. Instruments of death they could be if she got too close. And not only was it the fact that it was an aurochs, such a great and mighty beast, that it towered over the bison, but that this one, the flesh of this one, the hide of this one, was as white as the snow, as white as the moon that shone down on her that night. They didn't think that she would be able to do it, and now she doubted herself, as she saw in the distance a shape. <laughs> and heard, heard it huffing in the silence of the night and saw the great plumes of steam coming from its nostrils. Closer she crept, closer, and slowly she began to draw the string back on her bow, hoping, hoping that that bow would flex and stretch and then spring back to shape and send that fine shafted arrow mounted at its end with a tip carved and chipped and napped from stone so small yet so sharp that would bury that arrow deep into the animal's side would it be good enough would she be good enough and closer and closer she crept one young woman alone in the forest on that moonlit night against that great white aurochs and when she was close enough downwind from the animal so that it wouldn't smell her. She pulled that bow so it creaked and stretched and the string came up to her cheek and she loosed. Off went the arrow. She could almost see it spinning and flexing as it flew through the air and hit that milk-white flank and buried itself half, half deep into the side of the animal. But it wasn't enough. At the pain, the beast bellowed, shaking snow from the trees around, waking owls from their nests and setting the wolves to howling in the distance. And it turned, and with its glaring, blazing eyes, it saw her and poured the ground and began to charge. She wasn't fast enough to outrun it. She could never outrun it. And another arrow, even two, three, four arrows, still wouldn't bring it down. And so grabbing her spear, again a long, tapered point, almost almond-shaped, fat at its base and sharp at the tip, and planed and sheened down till it was razor-sharp, mounted on a wooden shaft. There she had it out in front of her. No, she wouldn't throw it. Why would she throw it? She might miss. Instead, she had to stand her ground for her life, for her brother's life, against her and that mighty animal as it bore down on her. And then jamming the butt of the spear in the ground, holding it fast in the earth, crouching low and holding that spear point down as that dreadful beast towered and bellowed and crashed over her, it pushed itself onto that spear tip and pushed that spear deep, deep into its chest and pierced its own heart. When she recovered from the impact and stood up, finding a birch tree to lean against to gain her breath, she looked down at that white, white snow and that white, white body of that great aurochs as it lay 
still and silent. The black of the shadows, the white of the forest snows and the moon, and the red blood stilling, steaming and cooling as she looked down upon her defeated foe. Jason, have you had to adapt particularly um, to the online experience? You talk about, you know, lockdown suddenly th throwing all of this stuff online rather than, um, you know, being there in a venue, interacting physically with an audience, perhaps. Was that a real shift in, in technique for you? I don't think it felt so... I didn't think it felt too bad for me. I started that... I started it quite early on when when the lockdowns announced and I sat there and I thought, ah, oh, and I just sat there refunding tickets to the, all the, the tours that I'd lined up, a great and glorious tour of Egyptian myths for 2020. Um, and then I thought, well, I, well, I'll give it a go. And I'm quite comfortable with, with using a computer uh, uh, and, and, and doing stuff there. I know a lot of my colleagues thought, but aren't or weren't comfortable with, with using a computer and saw it very much as IT and, and it wasn't the same experience. Um, but I decided to see if I could continue to pay my bills and so did what I needed to do. Um, and um, there was a bit of trial and error in terms of getting it right. And, you know, now we kind of can all jump on a Zoom call and do things and it's fine. And most people can, can get on and watch stuff. But um, there are differences. I think this is where probably I, I sort of I've, I'm unconsciously getting closer to um, uh, Mary Ann's sort of uh, natural background of understanding that uh, for a start, I have a rectangle. I have a box in front of me. And I have to know what I'm doing in that box and I can either play with that and I can what I can't do in real life. You know, I can comically lean into the camera. Uh, uh, I can move around uh, and I can be, be in that space. So part of it was about l definitely limiting myself physically because I'm quite a physical uh, person. I wave my arms around a lot and, and whistle over the place. But bringing myself down to be in front of that box uh, within that box and to uh, to talk to people. But then it's just the, the conversational part of the storytelling comes to the fore more. And you have to exaggerate more of those things. You can't depend on great physical movements. So there was a certain amount of, uh, of change, but um, it, seems to have worked, it seems to have worked okay. And I'm, and I'm still doing uh, online shows to you know, lots of people now around the world, instead of perhaps what I as a professional would be hoping to get a new audience in the next town or moving around the countryside and doing that. I can now do this from the comfort of my home. And one of the interesting things for me was something I didn't expect was as lockdown began to open up and I started to do more live performances, more face-to-face -face performances, I asked my online audience who I'd been, been with for the past six months to a year, you know, anybody suggest anywhere that I can come and perform? And I remember going to one venue up in um, um, uh, the north of England where people came up to me and said, hello, it's me, you know, and oh, hello, how are you? Of course, I've only ever seen you online. And they started to say things like, thank you so much for the storytelling over lockdown. You know, I've, um, it was it was great seeing your face every few days. You know, I had something there and so-and-so was stuck out on this part of the country and you know, on their own and very isolated, but also that people were sort of, because they were locked down and having to think up uh, uh, things to do, someone had restarted up their music at home and somebody else was doing more art. And that actually became what it, what storytelling used to be and very much a kind of a communi community-based thing as well as kind of broad bardic entertainment. But that very kind of close, personal, empathic and immersive experience of people, even though they were sitting at home drinking a cup of tea with their big fluffy socks on listening to me, you know, 400 miles away. 
Exactly. We've we've created a, a, a global community experience, which can now continue, haven't we, by by um, working in this way. It's a, it's a whole new type of, of folklore transmission, and it's a whole, whole new type of, of storytelling and experience, I think, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it is, I mean, the fact that so many more things are online has enabled me to, as a, you know, a busy person, two small children, the times that I am at home, often I can't go, husband, do you mind if I just nip out for the one week, you know, one evening that I'm at home, at home this week? Um, whereas actually sitting down in our fluffy socks in the sofa, you know, sitting on the sofa together um, meant has meant that we can you know attend lectures listen to storytelling shows all sorts of things one of the things that jason and i uh, decided to do was rather than to kind of use a zoom webinar where you can't see anybody at all use a normal zoom meeting and when we do the storytelling chunk of the show uh we ask everyone to turn their cameras off so no one gets distracted and so bandwidth works best for most people but either side of that in the kind of the the preamble of people coming in and settling down and the bit at the end where we're kind of chatting and, and saying goodbye people turn their cameras on and it I absolutely love it mostly because I'm nosy that's why I'm an anthropologist and, and journalist but you get to see into people's lives and you know there was one person who was sitting there kind of uh, uh weaving and they'd obviously been weaving throughout the whole show and it was just remarkable. And then there's someone else, you know, with like five cats sitting on their heads. Um, someone else uh, in the States, we were doing an evening show, but they were in the States. And so they were sitting there having lunch in the like gorgeous Miami sunshine. And um, it was just it was just remarkable to kind of, like you say, have that sense of community in all the little boxes. But it also... Yeah, and... and- Sorry, Jason, go on. I said, and, and it also gives, as you touched on there, about the ability to communicate with the audience. When um, perhaps in a live show at the end, when everybody claps and you bow and you walk off stage, a few people might come up and talk to you at the end. But the ability for people to either vocally or in the, in the chat to be able to ask questions and respond to things means you can elaborate on things without people feeling that sort of that awkwardness or that, that barrier that one can sometimes have with a live performance about, oh, I don't, I don't want to bother them, they finished, or, you know, uh, or for whatever reason. People can interact and it's a much more kind of close-knit thing. Mm. Any, anybody who has been regularly or, or semi-regularly to any of our online talks, online lectures, the weekend conferences that we've been putting, putting on for the last two or three years will absolutely attest to this. This is how we have always operated and it's such it has built such a good community. People come along and before the event starts now, everybody is like, what's Freya Lynn spinning this time? Uh, yeah. What's, <laughs> what's icy knitting exactly. today? You know, yeah. and... Um, yeah. There's an expectation. Where is your cat? When will it be appearing? And and but then also we do the same thing. We don't allow people on screen during a talk or a lecture or a presentation for those obvious reasons. But but either side, yes, we absolutely invite it. But what we do also invite is for people to use the text chat all the way through. And in fact, at the beginning, where a lot of lecturers were going, no, that's really distracting, you can't do that. Actually, everybody realised that suddenly there's a whole new dimension and everybody's putting links and networking to other bits of knowledge and other stories. And, mm. you know, again, there are pros and cons from being online to to being live. And 
that is one, I think, of the real pros, is it does create this com- whole sense of community that you don't get in the same way otherwise. And it's much more inclusive. It mm. means that people with caring responsibilities, people who might not want to travel at night, people who live more remotely, people with mobility issues who might not be able to access a given venue, it's it's open to all. And it's a really good hang. Yeah, yeah, community. That's what it's about. Yeah, it, it's pretty, this isn't a job, surely, is it? This this isn't <laughs> a normal kind of work grind. This is just a, a lot of fun, surely. Okay, it's a lot of fun, but it is also it is also a lot of work. Um, I used to do, um, uh, years ago, I used to have, um, um, you know, nice high-pressure jobs in, you know, consulting and business and design and things, and that didn't make me happy, whereas... Um, doing this makes me happy but I work six seven days a week you know and I work I work a full day I'm either researching or telling people about what's coming up or writing things or you know preparing things I'm I'm waiting for my new book to arrive today to see that's okay to send it back and um, if you do it as a job as a proper full-time job then uh, yes you're you're busy but it's a good busy you're busy doing the things that you enjoy absolutely I I think a lot of people who consume content forget about the amount of work that goes into the creation of of content yeah. and yes it is a hard slog but i've been doing this for seven years now you know I'm, yeah. <laughs> it is a hard slog but it's ultimately um enjoyable and and enlightening and fascinating and you learn so much and you hear from other people how you've affected them and it's such yeah. a valuable experience as well isn't it so so with all that in mind how are people going to watch what you've just been talking about where can they see this fine product ho 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 so if you want to join us for our next archaeological storytelling show where we fuse fact and fiction and bring original and traditional tales together uh, we have a show on Thursday, the 29th of September, starting at 7.30, British summertime, uh, but obviously available around the world. And we are uh, you can get your tickets on Eventbrite. Uh, so if you search Secret Histories, Monuments and Memories, it should come up. Or um, head over to my Twitter or Instagram. There'll be links there. Or to Jason, where, Facebook page? Yeah, Facebook or Instagram. Yeah, if you search for Jason Buck Storyteller. And it's also, I think, worth saying that if you can't make the live show, it will be recorded. And so it will be available to uh, to people who either because they've got other commitments or, as you say, caring commitments or or uh, in the part of the world where it's night time. There will be a, a link that will be sent to all the ticket holders um, so they can watch the show as well later. It's regular Zoom, regular Zoom. So uh, not too much of an onerous technological burden to join us. You can also head over to the Folklore Podcast website for this episode where that link will exist for people to go. If you listen to this after the 29th of September, hey, you missed it and it was wonderful. Uh, uh, but also <laughs> don't don't bother clicking that link because it won't work. But for the next for the next few days, it, it absolutely will work. Um, but I'm sure there will be more opportunities for people to see you and to see you live too. Yes, I think so. So we are literally in the process in the in these days around us, uh, writing, putting in the final touches to the to the stories. It's a whole new show. Um, and then we are hoping to take it to some venues live uh, in the coming months and into 2023. So stay tuned. Keep keep on uh, keep in touch with us on, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you should see the dates as they come up. Uh, if you want a glorious holiday to Devon, then uh, we will be happy to host you in the Folklore Library and Archive, and you can do a performance in there. That would Huzzah. be lovely. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yes, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it offline. 
Yeah. Okay. Good idea. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, in the meantime, Mary and Jason, thank you so much for taking the time to chat about archaeological storytelling. The Witch Bottle and the Cow. In most circumstances, we don't actually know the specifics of the person who used and then dropped or lost or hid an artefact that's then later discovered. But in the strange case of the Navenby Witch Bottle, we actually do. This witch bottle was found in the foundations of a house in 1999 when the modern owners were renovating their home. The bottle that they discovered is an old glass inkwell and stoppered up inside it were a very strange collection of items and liquids. Bent pins, iron hooks, part of a leather strap, some human hair and then the liquid which turned out to be human urine. Why had someone buried a small bottle of bits and bobs and hair and wee in the floor of a house? Well, the year was 1834. Surprisingly late for such superstitious shenanigans, but then they were a little backward in Navenby. In those days, of course. A couple called Dillard and Joy lived at the house. Joy, it turned out, was an ironic name for a girl, then a woman, who seemed to maliciously delight in finding the bad in people, goading them to unkind acts, and then remembering and reminding them of the occasions with a shriveled scowl. The bile had eaten her up inside too. She was thin, she was drawn, her mouth suckered up like a tight, angry bum. Her fingers were claws, her shoulders were hunched, and she liked nothing more than shouting at children and animals. Dillard, her husband, was a perfect match for his miserly pinched wife. He was his parents' fifth son. To be fair, a bit of an accident after a harvest moon party. And when he popped out into the world, bawling and belching, they were at a loss for a name. His brothers, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, were all asleep in their truckle beds downstairs. Ma and Pa looked down at the little baby's purple face, his bulging eyes, his angry little fists. And then it came to her. Ma said, Dillard! Dillard! Dillard. Dillard! Well, Dillard always resented not being biblical. Why had they not chosen Isaac or Joseph or David or Abraham? No, he wasn't biblical. He was Dillard. Well, this slice shaped his character. The chip grew and deepened and hardened. He didn't like people. He didn't want friends. He learned that if you scowled and dawdled, people would stop asking you to help. And in a small village, that really did matter. Nowadays, if people did dare come to ask for Dillard or Joy's help, Joy would go to the door. <laughs> that soon taught them. Well, one day, Joy and Dillard were standing, staring out across their yard at the lone cow. A sad brown cow stood staring back at them, hollow eyes wary, shivering slightly in the January morning. 
There, it's bloody thin, Joy grumbled. I can see its ribs. Bleh, said Joy. The cow didn't have a name. It didn't need one. It responded perfectly well to move and stop and the judicious use of a hazel switch. Dillard shuffled across the yard towards the cow to get a better look, and the thin brown cow tottered away from him until it reached the rickety fence. On the other side of the fence was the land of Joy and Dillard's neighbour, Farmer Brown. From their house they could see his cow, a lush, dreamy-eyed milker, swishing her tail and chewing the cud thoughtfully. Joy looked from her thin brown cow to the plump animal next door. You, fat farmer brown and his fat brown cow, I hate them. And her mouth suckered up like a tight, angry bum. Dillard nodded, sucking in his cheeks. It's not fair. Why have we got this thin nothing beast and he's got a fat brown cow? Milk, butter, cream, all we get from that. And he kicked a lump of dung at the poor sad brown cow. All we get is more dung. They stood for a long minute, puckered and pinched, sinking into the mud and muck in their yard. And then all of a sudden, Joy realised the truth. <gasps> I understand the truth, said Joy. That fat farmer brown has put a curse on us. It's the only explanation. It explains everything. Oh. And that was the moment that Joy and Dillard began to formulate a plot to get their own back. Thanks to Marianne and to Jason for discussing this way of interpreting archaeology through folktale and story. If you're listening at the right time, do try and grab a ticket for their performance. If not give them a follow and watch out for future shows. All the links you need will be on the Folklore Podcast website page for this episode. The Folklore Podcast is an official podcast of the Folklore Library and Archive, a voluntary organisation dedicated to working to save, preserve and make available for the future folklore resources in all forms before they're lost forever. Everything that we do is made possible only through donation or by other help. If you enjoy our work, please follow us on Twitter at FolklorePod, share our episodes and engage with us. We love to chat. If you're able to help more, please visit thefolklorepodcast.com slash support, where you can make a one-off donation or join our Patreon for extra content. Without this help, we can't carry on. Every contribution is vital to helping us to preserve our past for our collective future. Thank you, and thanks for listening. See you next time.